Luke 13, 22 through 30. Again, Luke 13, 22 through 30. Jesus went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you. I do not know where you came from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. The word of the Lord. Well, I want to talk to you today about the topic of identity. I uh, remember a, a line from a movie that uh, as I was thinking about this sermon, it was from The Amazing Spider-Man. I do get all of my theology from comic books, by the way. But uh, it was from this movie, and at the very end of the movie, the teacher is talking to Peter Parker. And he says, it can be said that there are only ten plots in all of fiction. And she says, I think they're wrong. I think ultimately there's only one plot. The question, who am I? And I want to suggest to you that the question of identity is at the core of who we are as people. And as I survey the landscape of this country, indeed of the world, I see that we are in an identity crisis. You'll notice some of the issues that we're dealing with in the world. Issues like gender confusion. That seems to be all of the rage of what's going on and being talked about. Of sexual confusion. The world seems to have come up with the message that true freedom is the ability to create your own identity. Indeed, freedom means I can be who I want to be. But I suggest to you that that is not freedom at all. Freedom is not found in being who I wanted to be, but rather living in who I was meant to be. If I had a goldfish here in a bowl, the world would say freedom is you're able to go anywhere you want, to do anything you want. And so I could pull out that goldfish and set it over here on the side and it would be free. No, it wouldn't. Because it was meant to swim. And so the ultimate question that we have to ask and the reason the world is asking this question is because they have forgotten that my identity cannot be answered until this question is answered, who am I to you, God? Because it's God who made us. It's God who can unmake us. And there's no way that we can possibly know who we are until we know who He is and who we are in Him. And so this passage is ultimately about a case of mistaken identity. My goal for our time together is to shine a flashlight on you. 
Are you able to answer with any confidence the question, who am I? There's three parts of being able to leave here at peace with your identity. The first of all is you need a diagnosis, as this man does in this passage. Who am I? The second thing you need is a cure. How can I be sure that I'm right with you, God, that I'm living in the identity that you have for me? And finally, the proof. How can I go home? How can I look in the mirror? How can I live at peace with the fact that, yes, indeed, I am right with God. I am living in my identity. The truth of who we are, my friends, is ultimately revealed by how we live. And so let's walk through this process, the case of mistaken identity. Number one, the diagnosis. Jesus is walking through the towns and villages, teaching and journeying through, uh, to, toward Jerusalem. If you'll remember, Jesus has set his face toward Jerusalem. He knows that he has to go there. He has to die on a cross. And so he's resolutely walking toward there and he's sort of giving these last messages to people, this last invitation, if you will, to come to faith. And it says in verse 23, And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And then he says to them, and actually, if you translated this, it would be more accurate in saying, Lord, will those who are being saved be few? Someone in the crowd just sort of shouts this out. Now, based on the way that Jesus responds to him, we can see that this man is actually asking not about himself, but rather about others. Will those who are being saved be few? See, this man is Jewish. And this man, and we know based on the history, that there's some questions regarding who is a true Jew. He's really asking the question, is all of Israel going to be saved or only select Jews? Certainly not the rest of the world, mind you. But this man does not seem worried about his own salvation based on the way Jesus responds. So Jesus responds to him, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Jesus gives a very interesting answer. Because his answer doesn't focus on how many will be saved, but rather, how many will be lost. He says, strive to enter through the narrow door. This door is narrow, it's small, it's difficult to get into. In fact, it's so difficult to get into that Jesus says that you have to strive to get it through it. The word strive in the Greek we, is the word agonia, from where we get the word agony. It's an athletic term. It's a seriousness to it. There's a sacrifice to it. There's a focusing of it. He's communicating in such a way that he wants this man to understand nobody simply falls through the door. You don't simply wander in through the door. Rather, you have to agonize to get into the door. And we see there's an urgency of the way Jesus is communicating. There's a time sensitivity to it. Strive to enter through the door now because there is a limited time in which it is open. For many seek to enter and are not able. Now, what, it is, what is it that they're seeking to enter? You don't walk to a door. Rather, you walk through a door. They're talking about heaven. 
everybody wants to go to heaven. In fact, Jesus describes this as a, a feast where people will come from east and west and north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. That's the question, how to enter. Everybody wants to seek to enter. I, one of my job responsibilities is to do funerals. And at a funeral, whenever I speak to people about the deceased, it's always that he or she is in a better place. Nobody comes up to me and says, well, that's it. They're gone. Game over. No, rather, there's a hope of another place. They've walked through a door. Many will seek to enter, Jesus says, but will not be able to. And so we have to ask the question, why are they not able to? Well, it appears that they're, in this case, not striving to. They have some sense that they don't have to strive. Rather, they're already in. I mean, you don't have to strive if you've already arrived. And so we need to understand this man's world and the culture that he lives in. Sociologists will tell you that the way that one gains status in different cultures, really there are two different uh, types of cultures that it boils down to, two different societies. One's called an ascription society, and one, called, one is called an achievement society. In an ascription society, your status is based on your birth, or your kinship, your gender, or your age, or your interpersonal connections. This is the world that this man is living to, as opposed to an achievement society, which is based on your accomplishments. This man who's asking this question is living in an inscription society. And as a Jewish person, as part of God's chosen people, a descendant of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, he is naturally thinking, I'm already in. He's asking about other people. But Jesus' response, he turns it on them. In fact, verse 28, you'll see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all of the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And Jesus will say to you, I don't know where you are from. The most dangerous thing to say to someone in an ascription society, you have no status with me. But this person goes on, it's but uh, uh, it goes on, not ascription. It's ascription by affiliation then, if not by birth. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. In other words, Jesus, we had table fellowship with you. In this culture, to have someone into their home, for them to come into your home was uh, an example of acceptance. We accepted you, we invited you to lunch. And we heard you. You taught in our streets. We heard the things that you said. But Jesus says again, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of evil. What Jesus is communicating to this man and communicating to us all is being near Jesus is not the same as following Jesus. See, even though they had all the testimony of the prophets even though Jesus taught in their streets and ate in their homes, there was no life change. There was no repentance. There was no response to Jesus' message. And so Jesus condemns them, depart from me, you workers of evil. And Jesus 
seals the case. There will be people from the east and the west, from the north and the south, the non-chosens, if you will. And they will recline a table in the kingdom of God, but you will be cast out. For you who think you are first will be last, and the last will be first. Now the question for us is this, how do we relate to this passage? I mean, we're not Jewish, though you may be a Jewish Christian. But you know, there can be a sense of birthright in the church, can't there? All my life I've gone to church. Maybe there's some connections. My father is a pastor. My Uncle Louie is a pastor. We're a religious family. And the best of all, we're in the PCA. So we must be right. Right? We've got the Westminster Confession. Our theology is locked down. I mean, heck, we're here right now on Sunday hearing the Word taught in our ears. We're going to go eat afterwards and have fellowship together. Maybe it's a ascription by kinship. My husband or my wife is a serious Christian. Oh yeah, our money and our time, it goes into all of these things. We even are open our home for Bible studies, a young life. Yeah, I know His Word. I know what He said. I can even quote it back to you. On the face of it, if the world looked at our lives, they would say, yes, undoubtedly, if anybody's in the kingdom of God, it's this person. But might Jesus ultimately be saying to you, I never even knew you. See, there's a sense of surprise in this person. These people, when the door is shut and they come knocking, and Jesus doesn't respond to them. See, the core issue is there was no change in their heart regarding interacting with Jesus Christ. In verse 25, when they're knocking, they say, Lord, open the door. But they didn't say Lord before, did they? Only when the door was shut. They're relying on status, on reputation, for righteousness. And they chose poorly. I remember a time I have three sons and a daughter. My oldest son, uh, Mark, there was a time when uh, he was interested in going to the University of Virginia. And um, my wife and I both went to UVA. And it turns out they have these, um, these legacy luncheons uh, where you can go and you can meet with a dean, an academic dean, with your child. And uh, you can talk about uh, you know, going to UVA, getting on track, and getting into UVA. And so we went, and we're, uh, you know, I'm there with Mark, uh, and uh, Mark looks rather scruffy as I'm looking around, and everyone looks very nice and very done up. And of course, the parents, at least either one or two of them, are UVA alumni. And so we get into this meeting, and we're sitting around this big table. And really, one of the first things that they say is, the reason that we do this, one of the main reasons we want to do this, is we want you to know that even though your parents went here, that is no guarantee that you are going to go here. And as I talked privately with one of the deans, he said there's this implicit assumption, oh, my parents went there, therefore I am. And we want to disabuse them of that notion. Rather, if you have the necessary qualifications... Our goal is to help you walk through that process. 
But we want to communicate very clearly. It's not based on your relationship with your parents. That's kind of what God, uh, what Jesus is saying here. See, we have to examine the question for ourselves. How do I get my status before God? We live in the great Christian nation of America, right? Our founding fathers, we can quote some of the things. We're faithful churchgoers. We're religious. But my friends, the door is on a timer. And so we have to get serious. Strive to enter through the narrow door. Because in the end, it's not going to be based on your husband or your wife or your parents or even your activities, religious though as they may be. That's not qualification to make it through the door. So if it's not, then what is? This brings me to my second point, the cure. How can I be made right with God? So you hear that message and your natural response is, well, if it's not status by ascription, it's got to be status by achievement, right? There is a parallel passage to this one where it's told again from a different angle. You know, the di and perhaps it was told at a different time because Jesus answers this question about status by achievement. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Hey, that's the exact same response. But they gave a different argument. In fact, it seems like a pretty darn good argument. Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Surely if anyone was going to get into the kingdom of God, it would be these people, right? And yet Jesus responds, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. So there can be things that we are doing that on the outside look pretty darn good. But do not amount to anything to God. What we discover here is we cannot make it through the door based on our effort. Our dependence on our achievements has got to go. No, we have to enter through the door. So what is it that we know about this door? We know a couple of things. The first is it's narrow. You may not naturally see it. It's kind of hidden in a little way, uh, in a certain way. We know that this door has opened simultaneous with Jesus' coming. And we know that it ultimately will be shut when He returns again. We know that the owner is the only one that has the, the ability to open the door and to shut it. it. Made me think of this verse in Revelation 3, 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. The one who holds the key of David is Jesus Himself, the Son of God, 
the owner of the key. We know that Jesus is the door because he calls himself the door. John 10, we all know that passage, right? In the beginning where he talks about he is the shepherd for the sheep. And he comes to his sheep and his sheep know his voice. And he leads them and they follow him. Because they won't follow a stranger, they'll only follow him. He calls himself the shepherd and then he goes on and he calls himself the door. Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. See, my friends, the purpose of a door is entrance. To go from one place to another. Jesus is the door by which we enter to be saved. Acts 4.12, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. There is one way from earth to heaven. One passage way through. And it's Jesus Christ, the door. Those who enter by me will be saved. The door provides entrance. And the door provides protection. Everybody would have understood this illustration about Jesus saying, I'm the door. Because when shepherds were out in the field, um, the way that they would protect their sheep was uh, in the fields, they would have these things that almost looked like uh, almost perfect circles of rocks. Okay, they didn't really trust gates or anything. You know, everything rotted out there and so forth. And these, these um, enclosures, if you will, of stone walls had no door. Who was the door? Well, the shepherd would lead all of the sheep into this enclosure and there was only this much passageway for them to come in and out and the shepherd himself would lie down and would be the door himself to protect from anyone coming through and to keep them safe within. Jesus is saying that I am the door. I'm the shepherd that leads you in and I stand in between you and the enemy. There is another door in Scripture that gives a beautiful picture of this. And that's the Passover door. Remember, when God says through Moses, I will send the avenging angel throughout Egypt and he will kill the firstborn of every single family. But the way that you will be protected is that you will take the blood of an, a lamb that you will slaughter and you will put the blood around the door. And when the avenging angel comes, he will see the blood of the lamb and he will pass over it. And you'll be safe within. You see, my friends, there is no other door. If there was another door, why would he have to suffer? Why would he have to give his blood? Why would he have to give his life if there was some other way to enter in to the kingdom of God? 
It's so narrow because the door comes down to one. Only Jesus Christ. It's not based on my affiliation. It's not based on my achievement. Your blood will never be righteous enough to fend off what is required of you, the holiness of God. Rather, the only way that you can enter in through the door is to empty yourself of everything you can bring. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee to rest. Foul I too the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Christ came to bring the righteousness that we could never summon or muster. To bring the relationship that we could never foster on our own. There's a place that some of you dread going. It's not the dentist. It's the airport. Remember the carefree days of old when you would walk into the airport with your Uzi and your hunting rifle and check in to go big game hunting in Africa? No more. No, rather to get through that narrow gate, and you know the one that I'm talking about, you have to go through a process of emptying. And so you wait in line. I hear the checkout lines are rather tough these days. Anyone been to Chicago lately? And so the process begins as you take your belongings and you set them on the, on the uh, whatever that table is. But that's not enough, right? You take off your shoes. And then you take off your belt. That's enough, right? No, no. They want all of your valuables. So my keys to my house and my car and my safety deposit box and my watch and my jewelry, all of the things from which I derive value have to come off. They don't count when you're walking through the door. I have to go in simply me, nothing else, in order to gain clearance. What a picture of salvation. You know, part of the reason why some of you may not be entering through the door is you're not willing to empty your pockets. But that's what it takes to walk through the door. It's not grace plus your achievements. It's an insult to think that we could add to his sacrifice by the things that we have done on this earth. Rather, we taint them. So to strive doesn't mean to get your act together. It doesn't mean to sort of gird up your loins, you know? I'm holier than thou. I'm the top of the heap. Rather, it means giving up on yourself. Wholly trusting in Him. So what are you holding on to? What's the ace up your sleeve, you know? Just in case I've got to pull this card. That might be the very thing that keeps you from the kingdom of God. What makes me, me? You will never know your true identity until you know it 
only in him. That's the cure. It's Christ alone in whom I put my trust. Well, this brings me to my final point, the proof. There is proof we can know that we have chosen the door, that we have entered through. And the proof that we have chosen the door is a holy life. Now, you may say to me, wait a second, Carlos, that sounds like a contradiction. You just said it wasn't on the basis of our efforts that we can enter into the kingdom of God. And I say you're exactly right. But I'm talking about you who are on the other side of the door. You see, Jesus, ultimately, his condemnation to them is, depart from me, you evildoers. Is there some sort of change that has occurred? There must be a change that demonstrates who I am. See, here's the difference. In religion, I obey, therefore I am loved. But you see, there is some sort of ulterior motive in religion why you're obeying. I'm obeying so I can be loved. But Christianity says this, I am loved, therefore I obey. See, I don't have to. I want to. Because if there's one thing we see in Christianity, it's not simply a philosophy. It's not simply a change of mind. But rather, to be a Christian is to receive a new identity, a new creation. I have a new heart. I am a new person. Remember, to enter the kingdom of God, you must be born again. And because I've entered through the door of Christ, because I've entrusted myself to Him, I have a new master. And I am discovering true freedom. You know, my friends, love is the ultimate restrictor on freedom. What does that mean? Well, think about it. Before I married Lee Ellen, there was a host of things I could do that I could no longer do. Right? Because now I've tied myself to someone, and what's important to her becomes important to me. What she's about, my destiny, my future, my interests, they're all tied together can't simply go where I want to go, do what I want to do. But the truth of the matter is, I don't want to go where I want to go. I don't want to do what I want to do if it's not with her. Her interests become mine because I love her. And Christ is my Lord and God is my Father like the goldfish in the bowl, right? True freedom is to find the right master. Because God is the only master in which you can become a slave and be truly free. And so when you love someone, you love what they love. And Christ is holy and righteous. Not a speck of evil within Him. And so the demonstration of who I love will be shown in how I live. So you can obey and not love. It's a farce. But you can't love and not obey. 
And so Jesus says, whoever has my commands and keeps them, it is he who loves me. My commands are the proof. Now I want you guys to understand that we read all of the scriptures. Scriptures tell us that we still sin. First John, if anyone says that he has not sinned, he's a liar and the truth isn't in him. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just. We're not perfected yet, but there's a different trajectory to our lives. There's different fruit that's coming from our tree because we're a different tree. Some of us have fallen into this faulty theology which says, I can't please him. Everything I do is as filthy rags to him. Our salvation is not based on our efforts. But as children of God, it's a totally different thing. Imagine my child coming and drawing a picture and bringing it to me and saying, what do you think about this, Dad? I made this for you. Oh, this is terrible. Oh, gosh. Please, go back. Do something else. This is horrible. That which is done in love and that which is done in love will be shaped by obedience to His Word. Pleases God. We can bring a smile to His face. Does not the Scripture say that we were made to do good works which God has prepared in advance for us to do? Did He not say, whatever you drink or eat, do it all for the glory of God and stand firm and work because you know your labor for the Lord is not in vain. We get the wonderful privilege as children who have walked through the door of living lives that bring a smile to God's face. So the judgment, our lives will be examined as the proof of our hearts. Do not marvel at this in the book of John, Jesus says, for an hour is coming when all those who are in the tombs will hear his voice and they will come out and those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Our hope is built on nothing else but Jesus Christ and his righteousness. But the works that we can do are really the testament to the world and to ourselves of who we are. I want to lay my head down at bed at night and say, I must love Jesus. Look at how I tried to live my life together. Maybe it was crayon on a piece of paper, but it was done in love for God. As I sought to love Him by how I lived, as I sought to love Him in how I loved other people, the proof of how I know that I am right with God is that the desire of my heart is to love Him. I am a changed person. You can obey and not love, but you can't not love and not obey. And so, my friends, finally, examine your life, for it reveals your heart. Is my life lived for the love of God? Imperfect? We're all in different places as God is changing us and reshaping us. But the truth of who I am is revealed by how I live. So the diagnosis, who are you? 
You won't find it in this world. You won't find it in your reputation. There's only one way to be made right with God. Enter through the door. Empty your pockets of all your righteousness and all your achievements. Only His cross. And embrace His love and acceptance that you can know today the peace of being made right with God. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through Christ Jesus our Lord. And live a life of love. Not because we have to, but because we want to. When you choose to live in this way, you will find true freedom. Not in creating your own identity, but rather in living out the life that God has meant you to live. He has a life for you. This time. This day. So strive and run in such a way as to win the prize. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are the blood on the door that you lay down in between us and judgment. For we are guilty. But your righteousness and your holiness is more than enough to make us clean and righteous in your sight. Lord, help us to empty our pockets that's simply weighing us down. And to embrace you and to live a life for one Lord one master, not because we have to, but because we have entered through the door and we want to. We love you. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.